0: Healthcare Today is produced and paid for it by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to wdev at radiovermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary residents, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well, Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and kinneydrugs.com employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers and this is Healthcare Today. It was two years ago this month that the COVID epidemic began in the United States. We all know the many changes this has caused in our lives, and it certainly has also impacted our hospitals in Vermont, which were on the front lines of health care. We're going to talk about how the COVID epidemic affected Vermont's hospitals and what the hospitals are doing today. Uh, we're going to be talking with Mr. Claudio Fort, who's the CEO of Rutland Regional Medical Center. Uh, Mr. Fort was appointed President and Chief Executive Officer at Rutland Regional in April of 2018. He has over 30 years of experience in healthcare administration in Maine, Illinois, and in Vermont. Previously, he served for almost 10 years as President and CEO of North Country Health System in Newport, Vermont, and also as President of St. Joseph's Hospital in Illinois. He has an undergraduate degree from the University of New Hampshire and an MBA from New Hampshire College and has been involved with many regional uh, board uh, associations in Vermont. We welcome Mr. Fort back from – he was one of the very first guests on this show when we began 17 months ago, and obviously we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, And Mr. Fort, welcome. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Dr. Myers. Good to, uh, good to speak with you.
1: I should add as a disclaimer that I am one of the, uh, hospital physicians at Rutland Regional Medical Center, uh, and work with Mr. Fort in that capacity at Rutland. So, Let's talk about these two years of COVID. Uh, As I mentioned, the hospitals have really been on the front lines. Many of the specialty and primary care offices had to step back from the care they had been providing, and much of that ended up being provided in the hospital setting. Tell me about how this has affected uh, Rutland, and I should ask how it's affected you. I know that uh, often I see you late in the evenings in your office. Um, I know that it's taken a toll on everyone.
2: Yeah, it's um it's a little bit surreal uh looking back at the past 2 years and it's somewhat of a of a blur. Um but you know I think uh that the COVID pandemic has um in some ways fundamentally changed uh the US healthcare system. Um you know, we have a long we're very fortunate that we're seeing um you know case rates come down dramatically, and um, things are reverting very quickly to pre-COVID levels of of transmission. You know, the hospitals are going to be longer to recover. Some of our local communities and businesses are are coming back very quickly. Um, But this, the impact on hospitals, is there's going to be a long tail to that. Um, So I think on the hospital front, uh, you as a physician are, you know, taking care of patients, I think... uh, um, you know, we're changed. Uh, we are. Um, we've gone through two years of, a, of somewhat of a, a war on the front lines in healthcare, and um, you know, I think we're resilient and we're looking forward with great hope. We're a little bit nervous because last year we we started reverting to normal and then we we had to pull back again. But so I think we're a little bit frayed and a little bit. Uh, um, you know, a little bit in the fog, but we're very optimistic on the health care front of, of moving forward and, and kind of restoring more normalcy in, in the hospitals.
1: By the way, we uh, we welcome your calls this hour. If you've had any recent experiences in the hospital or, or questions for Mr. Fort, we're at 802-244-1777. That's 802-244-1777. So, uh, let me ask this from a financial standpoint for hospitals. Many of our hospitals in Vermont were already <clears throat> struggling, particularly the smaller hospitals. Uh, there was some federal money that was dispensed in part of the, as part of the federal legislation. How did that affect your hospital and, and the other hospitals in Vermont?
2: Well, the federal and the state uh, financial support were essential to us being able to keep our doors open uh, for some services. Um, you know over the past two years, Rutland Regional uh, received um, in excess of 30 million dollars of federal and state funding uh, and that was crucial, especially back in those days two years ago that you mentioned when this began because we very quickly shut down a lot of um, non-emergent uh, procedures and so you know a lot of the a lot of the you know along with those procedures the it, you know the financial impact was that's uh, where a lot of revenue to hospitals have has come in so that just i've never seen in my 30 years um us fall off um you know our revenues just kind of fall off a cliff like they did so we were in free fall back in March, April of 2020.
1: How did you decide to – how was that $30 million sort of divvied up within the hospital?
2: Yeah, so there were, there were several tranches of federal relief and state relief. And, you know, because of that, even though, you know, we, we by and large kept our staffing intact. Um, you know, we were able to put people on furl- on paid furloughs back when uh, there was no work for them. Um, and we were able to keep people on the payroll um, because we knew at some point uh, we'd need them. You know, fast forward a year later when uh, things, uh, you know, we got the vaccine and we opened up health care. You know, last May when the governor kind of took off the restrictions on health care, uh patients came flooding back and we've been consistently busier than we ever had before so having those staff available to bring back was critical to us being able to take care of those those deferred care needs
1: which is i think was the the point of the uh the initial federal <clears throat> legislation let's talk about you mentioned people came flooding back patients came flooding back um That was an issue, obviously not just in Vermont, but nationally, that uh, elective surgeries were being postponed, as well as important screening tests for cancer and and cardiac screening and other uh, important screening tests. Um, What have we learned about that, uh, or what if, from your perspective, uh, was there a way we could have somehow kept those going? We know that some people... Have either had to continue on in significant pain, for example, if they weren't able to get their orthopedic surgeries done, and perhaps have even more concern that that cancers uh, have gone undetected and cancer treatments have been postponed. What have we learned for the next pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think uh, we actually modified that approach. You know, that was the early days before. You know, when we shut things down, I think we did the right thing and 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 needed to do it by necessity because as you it's hard to remember back then but we didn't have some basic supplies we didn't have enough just general surgical masks uh, to protect our staff um, and then the n95 level respirators and we had no vaccines and so and we had limited access to testing so we you know, had had a hard time knowing those patients were coming through if they were positive and so forth. So shutting down was by necessity. Fortunately, you know, as we um, ramped up and had more access to protective equipment, uh, more access to testing, and then obviously the vaccines, which were uh, eventually the game changer, we learned over this past year that even though, and especially last fall in through the winter up until now even though transmission rates uh, went through the roof and we had the highest level of covid positive patients we we did not have to resort to shutting down our clinics and our, um, our services um, because we could test quickly and isolate folks quickly and then we had the vaccine that protected from serious illness so and, and we had the personal protective equipment, so we could protect ourselves. It was a great burden to frontline healthcare workers who were wearing N95 masks for 12 hours straight, but still it kept them protected and enabled us to take care of the community. So I think going forward, um, you know, we won't have to. For a, you know, if this flares up again, we're not going to have to resort to a shutdown. Um,
1: so, so if, if another variant is. came up, let's, let's just hypothetically say another variant arrives this winter that is not so susceptible to vaccines, would you continue to, to keep your, at least your cancer screening and cancer treatment uh, online or keep, keep it going?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that, um, you know, we had to shut down our, our colonoscopy. We turned it, you know, back in, turned it into a negative pressure COVID ward um, back in 2020. In 2021, when we had that significant resurgence, we did not go back and do that again. We looked at other areas of the hospitals because um, you and some of your other colleagues in the emergency department and so forth started telling us anecdotally when patients came back to the hospital after being gone and not having the screening colonoscopies and those type of things, they were seeing more undiagnosed cancers than they had seen uh, previously. So we plan on going forward trying not to eliminate that because we saw firsthand the impact it had on patients and on, and on the hospital.
1: Yeah, I saw a statistic this week. that CD, CDC has released figures which indicate that the excess mortality over the past year has been 1 million deaths. Obviously, that far exceeds the number of people that died from COVID. So there are a lot of people who have died from secondary causes, such as perhaps what we're talking about, uh, lack of screening or other social causes. The opioid epidemic has has spiked again, even higher than it had been. So, yeah, we're talking about a lot of uh, extensive fallout from this uh, virus that uh, goes well beyond the virus itself. Let's, let me ask you about visitor policies. That was, and that's something I've brought up in the past. Um, that was also uh, initially, uh, not just in Rutland, but across the country. Um, visitor policies were very restrictive. And one of the things that we saw were, uh, people, patients dying in the hospital without any family members allowed in. Um, obviously this from a moral standpoint, this is, Disastrous, uh, And I think it was disastrous for nursing staff in some of the hospitals that were really crushed by the pandemic. You had nurse burnout and other uh, staff burnout because they were essentially beca- having to become the family members as well as take on nursing responsibilities. Um, what is your perspective now as you look back uh, and going forward? What would we do for the next pandemic in terms of visitor policies? What have we learned?
2: Yeah, um again I think you know we we did that by necessity um because we did not want um especially back when we didn't have access to uh testing and so forth and we we didn't want um people coming in and and spreading that to compromised patients and to families but you're right Dr. Myers this was one of the tragedies of COVID and the people on the front lines, you know, um, our physicians and our nurses, who saw some of this happen, um, you know, I think we've put our everyone's put their head down and gotten through this period. But I think we're we're going to see, you know, kind of like after the war, people come home and then there's kind of some PTSD. They've seen some really sad, tragic things happen because of this. Um, we are fortunately, um, you know, working uh, um, to. Uh, reopen the hospital and liberalize our visitation policies. We've taken um, a number of steps now to allow people to come back and and visit more freely. Um, it, it's an important part of taking care of people. It's an important part of having patients here as their advocates for their um, hospital, their family members and friends in the hospital, and it's an important part of you know end of life care is one of the most sacred and important things that we do in health care. Um, you know, this is a, a once, you know, you go through this period, and having a, a good death where you can have family members um, be there for you is really important. So we're really um, uh, excited that we're doing this. And, you know, w- when we had to shut down again, um, we tried to be a little less restrictive than we were on the first uh, time, because we had more protective equipment and so forth. It's an uh, it's an important part of taking care of of people. Um,
1: so, I appreciate, and I think you know listeners would appreciate the fact that uh, that uh, that is an important part of what hospitals do. I think you use the word sacred, and I think that's a very very appropriate word. Let's uh, let me ask you about staffing issues. You mentioned that the uh, federal funds un- enabled you to keep staff. Uh, online and available. But uh, here in Vermont and across the country, one of the issues has been, uh, staffing shortages that were already present were, were greatly exacerbated. One of the ways that it, this has shown up is through the, one of the uh, approaches to uh, uh, combating it has been to hire uh, traveling staff, whether it's respiratory therapists, nurses, physicians, Uh, and this has helped plug some holes, obviously, but it has come at tremendous expense. Um, and I, you might, I might want to ask you about how that has affected the bottom line of, of your hospital's budget. Um, there are situations now where traveling nurses, for example, may be making two to three times as much as the nurse working, the staff nurse working right alongside them. Um, when a traveling nurse comes in, this not only includes their Hourly rate, but of course paying for their lodging, et cetera, that uh, that a staffing uh, company would uh, would charge, um, and it's almost like a shuffling. So you have staff nurses leaving for other states, and then you have to plug those to be travelers nurses, and then you have to plug those holes by hiring travelers nurses. Um, talk about that and and how it's affected your budget and how where you see that going in the future. Is this going to become a standard practice?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. That's our number one challenge right now here at Rutland Regional, and I think all of our hospitals in Vermont, and I, I think, as you said, probably across the country. Um, you know, we have we have respirator masks and N95 masks, and we have testing and we have vaccinations. Uh, what our biggest challenging uh, piece right now is is the staffing situation. So to put this in context, um, and particularly, first and foremost, on registered nurses. So to put this in context for Rutland Regional, we have about 450 registered nurses that we employ. Um, And right now, as of today, we have 74 open nursing positions. Um, So that is, you know, it's the highest we've ever had in, in our History and, in order to continue to be open and take care of the community and be able to provide those essential services, um, we have filled the gaps with cap travelers. We're, tr- we're working with the nursing schools. We're working with a whole host of folks, and and to try innovative ways to recruit and retain, ret- retain, and also to kind of grow our own nurses. How do we get? Um, good licensed nurses' aides to go back to nursing school. How do we support them? But that's a longer process. So in the meantime, until we're able to do this, uh, as of today, we have about sixty three traveler nurses. typically, um around this time of year, we would run twenty to twenty five travelers. So we have you know two or three times the number of travelers and and you know, we are as you say we're paying a premium um we're also seeing a phenomenon when we bring new nurses in when we go to orientation and for our staff i i ask folks where they're coming from and where they're going to be working and to give a little bit of a thumbnail of the, of their background and what brought them to rutland regional you know we have our traveling nurses go through orientation and what i'm what i'm hearing from them is more and more travelers are from Vermont or from right across the border in New York State, so people are are now starting to travel because of the the, the premiums they're able to get, um, you know, right in the state. So they're leaving hospitals and they're going down the road to travel for a three month assignment, and and you know they t- can typically drive home on the weekends. Um, that's this is not we're doing this um, by necessity. Um, We can't leave our nurses out there without enough support or our patients or you, our physicians, Um, but it's not a sustainable situation Um, for the long term. um, We are spending um, millions of dollars per month over our budget to to make sure that we have um, those nursing staff. So we're trying to... You know, we've done wage increases for existing staff to retain them and hopefully attract new, new folks. We've done some retention bonuses. So those staff who are working have been working for the past year for us. Um, you know, they see people come in and get this premium. We're, we're trying to give some type of a bonus to those who've stuck with us, um, and, and financial incentive. And then we're working really, really hard with our um, nursing schools, and even at the high school level to try to encourage people to go into the nursing profession and support them um, and mm-hmm. and uh, increase our clinical affiliations and, and ability to um, uh, take on more nursing students.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons why the nursing <clears throat> shortage has intensified. I think I read recently there are a few states around the country that are actually – where legislatures are proposing legislation to cap travelers' salaries. Uh, I don't know if it's on an absolute dollar amount or a percentage of uh, or a multi- uh, factor of uh, what the base salary would be in the hospital. And that's a pretty blunt instrument. Do you see any benefit in that?
2: Yeah, you know, it gets a little bit. I don't, you know, there's some pros and there's, there's some negative things, too, to try and interfere with the kind of, supply and demand. I mean, I I think, um, you know, on the positive side, we've been able to, we haven't had to shut down the hospital again because travelers have been able to do that. Um, so, I, I, and I know some of our federal delegation is looking into this, our, our people's so-called war profiteering. And are some of the traveling companies making, you know, windfalls at our expense? Uh, because not all those dollars go into the nurses' pockets. Um, they go into the, the traveling agencies. So, um, you know, I think that's, you, you know, there's some long-term consequences to that. You know, ultimately, the, the, I think the best solution is how do we increase the pipeline? We have the jobs. They're good jobs. Um, Vermont needs more people in the workforce. How do we increase the pipeline of training programs in the colleges and universities so that we can train more nurses and bring them on more quickly that's ultimately I think will be the will be the solution to this but
1: I know Rutland is very time. fortunate to have castleton 's nursing program in the community and it, it does serve as a pipeline um, these issues that we were talking about in this first half hour obviously are even more critical for the critical access hospitals, the 25-bed hospitals that, that dot Vermont. We have, a, a, I think, a 10 or 11 of them. Um, and I know you, you contact or in communication with their CEOs all the time. What are they experiencing?
2: Yeah, they're, you know, um, the same thing. And sometimes they have less resources than we have. I mean, uh, where I was for 10 years before I came to Rutland, North Country, was a critical or is a critical access hospital. So, you know, it's harder as you get smaller because you don't have some of the economies of scale to be able to be as flexible as the larger hospitals are. So, um, you know, they're very creative and, and doing great work, but... But I think it's harder for the smaller hospitals. Um, you know, for example, we have some staff in. You know, we have more supervisory staff that can have been able to fill in on the front lines. Um, and as you get smaller, you have less of those folks that can that you have those flexibilities. So uh, this has been an impact on on all of us, and the financial impact is starting to take its toll on hospitals, uh, as you had mentioned. The, those. The, the Primarily driven by workforce, but those costs are way outstripping our revenues at this point. And the federal and state COVID relief funding for health care has basically, we've come to the end of that.
1: Well, we're so, going to be talking about these issues and more in the second half um, with Mr. Claudio Fort. Please stay with us. We're at 802 244 1777. Back in a minute. Myers here with the second half of healthcare today. I'm talking with uh, Claudio Fort, who is the CEO of Rutland Regional Medical Center. We're talking about hospital issues and how hospitals have coped during COVID uh, pandemic. So uh, let me ask, we've talked about this in, in recent weeks, and that is uh, another issue for particularly the smaller critical access hospitals, but even the a regional hospital like Rutland, and that involves transferring patients when they need Tertiary care, what we call tertiary or specialized care, that the smaller hospitals cannot provide. Uh, clearly, not every hospital can can have a full staff of specialists. And um, uh, it seems like, especially when we read the articles by Seven Days a couple of months ago, that University of Mont Medical Center has, has at times seemed overwhelmed, uh, over capacity in terms of their inpatients, and then very, very long wait. Times in terms of their specialists. I know that you are involved on the uh, senior executive level with all of the CEOs, including those at UVM and Dartmouth. How are we working as a system to try and uh, alleviate this?
2: Yeah, this has been one of the most critical uh, issues we've dealt with, especially since um, you know. Uh, November, December, and, and January and into February, um, hospital capacity uh, was running in the 90%, high 90% range. Uh, and that's where it's way beyond the sweet spot of where you need. Um, so, you know, um, and I remember back in the fall, the Agency of Human Services did some projections, and they were concerned with, where COVID rates were going to be after Thanksgiving. And they had a projection saying, uh, they had a model that projected that statewide, we might see 75 COVID positive patients in our hospitals. And I remember back at that time saying, oh my goodness, how are we going to manage 75 COVID positive patients? Because we were already um, since November of 2020, uh, since May of 2021, when the restrictions came off. People came flooding back to the hospitals, and we got really, really busy. And we had a lot of people who had not been able to get their care come back. Emergency room volumes were high, and all of our various inpatient units were running really full. And the same thing happened at UVM Medical Center, Dartmouth, Albany, and so what ends up happening is when they're running, and, and then, and then the COVID wave hit, and we actually surpassed 75 COVID-positive patients throughout the state. We went, you know, we were, you know, around 100 and so forth uh, for a long period of time. So we not only had sick patients that had deferred their care that needed to be in the hospital, on top of that, we had a number of COVID patients in the hospital. And we would literally um, go three times a day to a bed meeting here at Rutland Regional Projecting who's in the bed, who's going to be discharged, who's waiting in the emergency department for a bed um, and so forth and so that was happening at all of our hospitals, big and small, and we were trying to make sure we had enough uh, staff and beds to take care of people uh, and to compound what happened is the nursing homes started getting and some of the um, you know some of the uh, some of the prisons started getting COVID in those institutional settings. And so either their staff came down with COVID and couldn't work, or their patients did, had to be transferred to the hospital. So on top of that, we had a number of nursing home patients that um, were in hospital beds that really didn't need there, but they couldn't take them at the nursing home because they they didn't have the staffing or they didn't have the beds. So that became somewhat of... A perfect storm and we were nervous and and you know we had some touch-and-go situations that we couldn't find a bed at a tertiary care center for someone that needed that on top of that uh, the EMS system was impacted so if we found a bed and we could get the patient to the bed, sometimes there was a delay in getting them transported because there weren't enough paramedics or EMTs or they were busy with other transports, and, you know, getting them there was the other challenge. So this really, um, you know, and and I will tell you how we worked together is we worked very closely with the state of Vermont. Um, They were very involved, and they brought us in They worked with the federal government to bring us some federal paramedics and some uh, critical care nurses to help staff the Vermont hospitals. Tremendously helpful during those peak periods. And then we would just work and coordinate with um, I think the Vermont hospitals, big and small, all worked together well to try to make sure that we we had the resources and got patients where they needed to be for care.
1: I think one of the one of the things that you're highlighting here is how connected or interconnected the system is, that uh hospitals, if uh, perhaps there was a time, a long time ago, when hospitals sort of were self-sustaining and, you know, isolated uh, facilities, but now it's part of a big network and everything affects everything. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things is <clears throat> people may not be aware is that Rutland Regional, for example, is also very involved with the primary care providers and the in the uh, Rutland area, and I'm sure other hospitals are as well uh, in this network. Uh, can you talk about that? How you uh, your your responsibility or interaction with the primary care?
2: Yeah, as you said, Doctor Myers, it, it, it is all connected, and and um, we worked very closely over these past two years with the primary care providers, with the nursing homes, with home health agencies and other parts of the health care system, the mental health agency, um, to try to work together so that, you know, early on when vaccines came and the hospitals had the resources to get the vaccines, um, we were working with them to make sure that they had access to those. When um, testing was a big big challenge early on and when the hospitals got testing we worked closely with them to make sure that they had some you know when they needed some critical patients that they needed to get tested they had avenues to do that on the other hand is you know they work very very hard to keep their practices open because what ends up happening is if you start feeling sick and you can't get to your primary care physician because the practice is closed, where do you go? Well you end up going to the hospital emergency room. and when the hospital emergency rooms were already overcrowded, um, that becomes a real problem. So uh, I'm very appreciative um, that during these past two years, uh, I've been in Vermont because you know Vermont when especially when the going gets tough, Vermonters stick together and that's, that's been the story of the past two years from our primary care providers in the community to the state of Vermont um, and the Department of Agency of Human Services, um, big and small, we worked together well to try to figure out this unprecedented period we went through, and, and we and we did it well.
1: Well, in talking about system issues, um, you and I have had some on, offline discussions about uh, OneCare, uh, and I know you're involved with the OneCare program. We've talked about that on this program a number of times with different guests. One Care, of course, is the large um, multi-institution uh, health care reform uh, that was initiated in 2016 in Vermont. Um, and I know that you've seen some positive effects of One Care in the Rutland community. Um, can you talk about the positives and what and, and whatever concerns you may have as One Care goes for its uh, five-year renewal?
2: Sure um you know on the positive front you know this has been being part of one care um and back when uh algo bay was at the green mountain care board and at the agency of human services he'd talked about this concept as you know the people who want to participate this is a coalition of the willing and so it has been a voluntary piece for our uh, hospitals and our primary care physicians to, to choose whether or not they wanted to be in. We've been participating in OneCare for the past five years or so, along with our primary care partners, because OneCare gives us an avenue, gives us a mechanism and a framework for some to get some of our hospital revenues that would typically have come to the hospital, now to, to divert them up front. And invest them in the primary care system. So part of our revenue streams now, instead of them coming directly through a fee for service to Rutland Regional, those revenues go to OneCare. OneCare divides them up, takes part of them, and funnels them up front to the primary care system to put in place programs like care coordination. And so our pri- now. Here in Rutland, it's really important because uh, we don't employ directly any of our primary care docs. They're all independent, and because of you know state and federal regulations, it is hard. Uh, it is very difficult for hospitals to provide revenues to physicians um, because of certain anti-referral and anti-kickback laws. One Care gives us a framework to do that. So, you know, we've seen, since we've been in One Care, our primary care partners add social workers, uh, RN care coordinators up front into the primary care practices to try to um, be able to manage people, patients, especially those with chronic conditions, on a more proactive basis before they get into trouble with their diabetes and show up in the emergency room, and then you have to admit them to the hospital, Dr. Myers. We're trying to catch those things earlier on, be preventative, and in that case, everybody wins, right? There's lower health care costs. The patient doesn't have a difficult hospitalization, and, and we do that. One care gives on the, So in the best of days, OneCare gives us the framework to do that. On the, you know, on the other side of things, I, I know people are very concerned about the cost of health care and health care reform and that um, things are not happening quick enough. Uh, that is the challenge. And this is a whole new way of trying to do business. Um, and it's, 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 it's time. You know, there is no immediate return on that investment. Uh, some of these initiatives take a long time to manifest and, and keep people out of the hospital. So that's the challenging part of that.
1: It's also been a, a concern in some quarters about transparency as well with OneCare, and they have some work to do on that. You know, there, nationally, there's there's an, an issue in regards to hospital systems in terms of consolidation um, and i think it's one of the main drivers of increased healthcare costs over the past 30 years that's my opinion but where large corporations begin to buy up hospitals and hospital uh, physician practices and all sorts of other uh, accessory uh, healthcare uh, uh, institutions and then they get monopoly power and they then can turn around and charge insurance companies and patients highly highly increased prices because they have monopoly um there's been w- one major pushback and that's out in northern california i believe with the, something called the sutter health uh health corporation uh where they had to give back about 600 million dollars uh, after the government sued them but it's still there hasn't been a lot of this pushback by the federal government um what are your thoughts about these huge consolidated healthcare systems are they good bad or in between
2: I, I think it depends. Um, I think it depends upon, um, you know, how they're structured and how their mission is. I, I you know, I had, uh, as you mentioned, I spent some time working for a regional healthcare system in Illinois, um, and I think that was a very good healthcare system. And they, you know, they weren't doing. That. It was a faith-based healthcare system, um, and it, they weren't doing things to drive be just to be able to get monopoly power certainly that's going on in parts of the country and that's that's concerning and and it it's not necessarily just the for-profits that are doing that some of the not-for-profit to be totally transparent some of the not-for-profit healthcare systems are are just as cutthroat or aggressive as their for-profit uh, counterparts i think um, you know i think things like 1care Part of the challenge is it's harder and harder, even without some of the other, this pandemic and all this type of things. It's harder for small businesses in any field to keep their head above water in this, the way things move so quickly and sophisticated, right? Look what's happening throughout the landscape in Vermont with the small family farms. We we lose something, you know, but they can't make a go of it anymore, you know, small dairy farms, um, they're all being bought up by these things. Even even maple sugaring operations have gotten huge scale, and you lose something from that. I think Vermont has been pretty good, and I think an, an, an organization like OneCare might give us the ability to work together more closely without having to be all part of um, one system and lose some of that local control that we value really I know highly in Rutland, and I know Vermont culturally values local control over over their community services.
1: It's absolutely true, and uh, one of the other uh, one of the other byproducts of the large hospital systems is that it seems to me that the physicians in the community end up having less say in how the hospitals run. Now, I think that's not true in Rutland. To your credit, I think that the you've kept in close contact with your hosp- uh, uh, local physicians, and they have a lot of say in terms of the hospital. But I don't think you can say the same at the University of Vermont, for example, where most of the uh, physicians in the hospital are now salaried, and uh, uh, I think that uh, the administration makes its decisions with probably fairly little input. Um, how do we – what is your take on that?
2: Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if we fully agree on that, Dr. Myers, and, and, you know, I've got a, I, I, I know some of the leaders at the UVM Healthcare Center, and um you know, uh, Dr. Leffler, who's their CEO, I think he was a great, uh, choice to be the CEO of the Medical Center. He, he actually, uh, is from right next door to us in Brandon. He, he's, he served on the, on the Rutland Regional Board before he became the president of the, of the Medical Center, and I think he's—you know—he came on board just uh, before COVID hit, and you know I think he's really working hard to, um, you know, make sure that physicians and other and nurses have a voice. And so I've seen him out on the front lines from my perch, you know, trying to interact with their nurses. And, you know, they've gone through some very challenging – my goodness, in the middle of the pandemic, they had a cyber attack that shut down their EMR. That could have been –
1: And they had a a lengthy nurses' strike prior to COVID.
2: They they, they did. They did. And, you know, that's the challenge because, um, you know, I I think last October we were nervous going into our um, union uh, contract renegotiations with our nursing union. Because across the country, they were calling the month of October, Strike Tober, because there was a lot of that because of all the pressures from the pandemic. So fortunately, we averted that. And, you know, I think uh, if you took a, take a look at what they've done, they reached an agreement with their nurses to provide additional before their contract, uh, uh, additional compensation to them. So I, you know, I, I, I think they're, um, Doing the things they need to do, but I think there also needs to be a recognition too. I think personally, and I think maybe this is where you and I might agree is as you get larger, healthcare gets harder because it does get less personal and it does get you get more removed. And you know, an academic medical center by its nature is a large, complex organization, and, and I think just inherently things are are more challenging for for some of those administrators. But, um, you know, I think in Vermont, we're we're fortunate. I think we've got a good academic medical center. I think we have a system that allows hospitals or tries to support hospitals to to remain independent if that's where they think they need to be and and to survive and, and for their communities. And then when you look at the, you know, the situation at Springfield Hospital, one of our smallest hospitals in the state, um, they weren't allowed. They weren't left just to their own devices. I think you had the administration, uh, the Scott administration, step in to try to support them and-, and keep them going for the community, and our regulator, the Green Mountain Care Board, who sometimes we don't agree with on, you know, pricing and cost and, and rate increases. The Green Mountain Care Board was very concerned and worked with them to try to make sure that the community of Springfield didn't lose that critical resource.
1: Well, we have a few minutes left. Let's let's finish by <clears throat> talking about the future role of hospitals as you see it. If you had a mad, uh, crystal ball to look into what you think is the future and also if you had a magic wand about what you would – if you were, could make all the decisions about uh, – here in Vermont about – the hospital systems. What you would like? What do you see as the future, and what would you like to see as the future?
2: Wow, that's a <laughs> that's a big question. You know, I, I'm concerned. Um, I'm concerned about the the long term impact of what we've gone through the past two years will have on hospitals, and especially going forward, uh, at some of the things that. You and I have talked about the staffing challenges that we have, the burnout issues for physicians um, and for nurses and for other healthcare folks. Um, I'm, and just the inflation, the incredible inflationary pressures we're, we're facing. Um, you know, healthcare is already expensive, but we're seeing uh, double-digit increases in drugs, double-digit Digit, digit increases to staff our hospitals, and um, you know I think that's going to be tough because I don't think there's going to be a lot more, more money for hospitals, and I think I think Vermont hospitals, by and large, having served up in the northernmost hospital to you know one of the southern hospitals in, in, in Rutland, you know hospitals are really committed to trying to take care of the needs of the community. And I'm hoping, my vision is, that we have a hospital system that is funded so that we can continue to do that, because we have now seen what happens when you aren't able to provide some of those critical um, screening-type things and, 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 and care up front. So, so my hope is that we find a way that our legislators, our administration, um Continue to find a way that they can fund hospitals in a sustainable manner, so that we can continue to be there for the communities we serve. Um, so that's my that's my fear and my my hope that we're there. I, but I I'll tell you, there's no roadmap on this, and we've got some tough uh, some tough days ahead of us.
1: Well, it sounds like uh, you're going to I'm going to be seeing you in your office at 7 p.m. and and later for for some time to come. Um, Hospitals are indeed evolving <coughs> both through the pressure of the COVID pandemic. and And I think a process had started many years ago. so it will be interesting to see. We may have to have you back on a on a yearly basis. Um, I want to thank you. I know that the Rutland Regional Medical Center community thanks you and, and Rutland as a whole. and um, thanks a lot for being here again with us today.
2: Uh, it's a it's a pleasure for me and an honor, and and I've really enjoyed our our conversation, Doctor Myers.
1: That's Claudio Fort, the uh, CEO of Rutland Regional Medical Center. Uh, <clears throat> any uh, comments you have, please uh, you can uh, text the station or call the station. I'll be happy. To, I'll be happy to try and respond uh, offline. Um, Next week, we're going to be talking about pathologists. Uh, many people don't know the full extent of what pathologists do in the hospital uh, setting in particular and, and uh, in research settings, uh, but it's fascinating. And we, we have a wonderful uh, uh, pathologist uh, from Virginia who will talk about that and all the research he has done in breast cancer over the years. So I hope you'll join us then. Uh, until then, uh, please be kind to yourselves. Uh, be kind to others, and I will see, talk to you next week.
0: With dr lewis myers brought to you in part by age well vermont the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern vermont westview meadows and the gary residents. retirement living the way it's meant to be Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com. Employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy. Pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com.
1: The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.